Welcome to uh, Birkegaard, the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, today I'm going to put the uh, the uh, purity of heart is the will one thing, uh, chapter 10, page 148. We're going to put this on hold, but I'm just going to read the title and then we'll move on to something else here. So chapter 10, the price of willing one thing, an examination of the extreme case of an incurable sufferer. If a man in truth uh, wills the good, then he must be willing to suffer all for the good. This actually ties in really, really well to um, today's topic, which is the suffering of Jesus. I was raised Catholic, uh, nominally so, but I took it fairly, fairly seriously as a child and a young, uh, a young teenager uh, until it just didn't make sense to me based on uh, my own thinking and also uh, life situations. But the church I went to, St. Monica down in Berwyn, Pennsylvania, had a portrait of Jesus on the cross in the sanctuary right in front. Uh, and it was dark and somber. It's hard to make that, would be hard to make that painting bright and cheery. Uh, sometimes the evangelical subculture tries to make biblical stories less brutal, uh, like you have smiling animals on the ark rather than terrified animals if the uh, world is indeed being covered by water uh, the animals are all smiling away so it's kind of doofy uh, but the catholics man they go hard they go hard on the crucifixion and i, I fault it to a degree but i also respect it to a degree because it also seems like uh the catholic uh system does not um does not give enough uh attention to the resurrection, but it doesn't minimize the suffering of Jesus. And that's really, really helpful because uh, God became one of us uh, and he was willing to endure the suffering of life. And it culminated, of course, on the cross. Uh, so we're going to get into that today through the uh, book, Philosophical Fragments, Johannes Climacus. This is a pseudonym of Soren's, of course. And uh, from what I was reading in the intro, uh, Soren initially was going to put this in his own name, but he adopts uh, pseudonyms as a way of adopting a perspective. Uh, he tries to be consistent throughout the book on that perspective. And Johannes Climacus is named after a desert father from Egypt uh, who wrote a book that's very influential in the Eastern Church, something about ladders, I think 30 ladders or something. I'm not sure. But anyway, the voluntary suffering, uh, this came up when I was talking to Randall Zachman, who is the uh, former professor of theology at Notre Dame uh, University, and he now lives in Lancaster City, and he was the uh, gentleman scholar who was uh, doing a presentation on Soren uh, a couple Sundays ago that my buddy told me about. He attends St. James down in the city, and uh, Randall has taken on a bunch of different uh, influential theologians, uh, historical and more contemporary people, guys like uh, Karl Barth, uh, Augustine, Aquinas, uh, and Soren came up. So I listened to and watched the uh, presentation on Zoom and then made contact with uh, uh, Randall Zachman afterwards uh, through his email that was posted on his CV, his resume. And he got back to me and he was excited to hear from me and I was excited to hear from him, of course. And it's always nice when I send an email to have someone respond, even if it's... Uh, you know, even if it's not an agreement to uh, to appear on the podcast, it's still exciting to hear back from people. It's a bit of a compliment, I suppose, that my uh, credibility at least warrants a response. And so I had given Randall some ideas about maybe what we could talk about on the podcast that I'm going to schedule early for 2023 at some point. 
Uh, we don't have a date specifically. We both agreed that it was just too early. Uh, there's just too much going on in the holiday season to try to pull it off. It may be better to wait until after Christmas is over and start again in January. As we lead, uh, you know, from the incarnation of Jesus in uh, in the world uh, to his crucifixion, uh, that's the um, that period, and it would be very, very good to um, talk about um, what Randall wants to speak about. But I gave him some ideas like consumerism, individualism, Christendom. Yeah, so just some ideas like this is maybe the top three three things that Soren would uh, want to share with uh, us in the contemporary world if he were to come in the flesh. If Soren was to be here, what would he want us to know, and what would he refer us to in his writings? And uh, but I said if you have something that you would like to talk about, like I have mentioned, like go ahead and mention it. That'd be great because uh, he's more of an expert than I am. I would consider myself a semi-expert on Soren, and that's growing, of course, with my library and my investment in um, in uh, learning more about Soren's writings and his life. Um, I'd say I'm getting there. I'm not there yet. I'm climbing the Soren Mountain. Uh, but this guy is an authority. This is one of his areas especially is Soren. I could tell when I heard him give this uh, talk that he really knew what he was talking about. Every time he needed to go left or right on Soren on a particular issue, he absolutely nailed it. So it was cool. But he got back to me and said, voluntary suffering, the willingness to embrace voluntary suffering would be what he would like to talk about in regards to Soren. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even think about that. Like That's really something that Soren does emphasize. Uh, he doesn't want us to uh, think Christianity is, is a safe, clean, um, antiseptic uh, type of religion. It's, it's bloody. It's uh, real life, man. And anytime people say that religion is kind of uh, a disembodied type of experience, they haven't read the scriptures. They haven't read it from beginning to end. It's full of tragedy. It's full of hope. Um, but the nails are real, and Jesus died a real death on the cross. And it's not eye or um, pie-in-the-sky stuff, that's for sure. So voluntary suffering, and that's actually the um, that chapter in Purity of Heart is the will and thing. And it also is this uh, chapter that I want to focus in on today from Philosophical Fragments written by Soren in the pseudonym of Johannes Climacus. Okay? And this is a book that was uh, translated by the Hongs, who are really the, uh, the authority and were the authority on Soren Kierkegaard. And thank goodness for their work because they had their hands in about 29 or 30 books of Sorens from the Danish to the English. Um, Howard Hong was a philosophy professor at a university or college in the Midwest somewhere. <clears throat> and uh, his wife uh, also helped him translate. So they were philosophically trained and also good with the Danish language into English. So that's a rare combination, of course. And uh, we can be really thankful that they spent their life's work doing that. They didn't do that in vain. Uh, I also mentioned quickly last... Uh, Man, it was last Friday morning. I hopped on real quick, and I even didn't have my microphone. I just spoke right into my phone, uh, the uh, built-in mic on my phone, uh, that I want to do a quick promotion for the production of Leap, and that was done by Jeremiah Miller, the actor, uh, local actor. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, um, aficionado, uh, truly a person who... Love Soren's work, and uh, it was the labor of love for him to do this production leap, which is the story of Soren's life, where he personified in character uh, Soren's life. And the thing that came across in the um, in the production was uh, 
you know, and this is a faithful rendering of Soren, as far as I can tell, is that Soren, um, obviously very bright, uh, very witty, um, but also a person that had had a lot of struggles. He, he wasn't a person who was speaking philosophy to the air. He wanted to call his readers to a serious life, because uh, that's the life he embodied. And he, uh, he took life uh, seriously, as should we, of course. And uh, I'm going to have uh, Jeremiah also on this podcast. Uh, it's going to be pretty neat. Uh, so that'll be in 2023, too. I feel like I'm more capable of having guests at this point <clears throat> because I know more. But it's also a bit intimidating because I'm going to be in situations talking to people that you know, likely know more than I do or they have a development and understanding of Soren that I haven't developed yet. Uh, like Jeremiah uh, did an hour and a half play on Soren. He clearly knows Soren very well and his writings very well. Uh, so I'm going to be in a situation where I have to cede uh, control. I have to be a good listener and I have to uh, ask good questions but let the, uh, let the sun shine. And I'm not jealous. You know, We're all trying to make Soren relevant in the, in the contemporary world. And one way that um, people are relevant with their work is to be eternally minded. That's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if you want to really be, uh, be relevant or contemporarily uh, popular or relevant, and it's not popular, it's not the word, but um, if you want to be uh, relevant, I guess is the word in a contemporary sense, uh, be eternally minded. And that's being relevant in the best way because uh, it's actually giving things for people to employ in their life. And the good thing about philosophy is it does it does hit the hit the the pavement at some point. The philosophy can't stay up in the air. And I've been going through some suffering recently, as I talked about last week. I mentioned that I have a cold townhouse, and uh, let me explain a little bit more about that, so you don't think I'm a com- complete masochist. Um, baseboard heating, electric baseboard heating, is extremely expensive. I was talking to a friend of mine who didn't know that when he got his first apartment after college and he had baseboard heating or it was the first time he had baseboard heating it might not been right after college and he let it crank up and keep the house warm during uh, the winter month and he got his bill and it was $300 just for the uh, electricity related to the electric baseboard heating so it's a very inefficient way and expensive way to heat a home I keep my bedroom warm and I have a space here in the living room and I have a um, a wood pellet stove that I can crank up if it gets cold enough. So basically, I uh, I wear a hoodie or a sweatshirt when I'm downstairs eating breakfast and things like that, or I turn on the heater, and I spend a decent amount of time in my bedroom. But I'm not going to just heat the house and watch the dollar bills fl- uh, fly out the window. Uh, that's just too it's just too expensive. Three hundred dollars is a lot to heat a home, and uh, natural gas has been historically cheaper and oil and all that stuff, but maybe not anymore. Who knows? All right, so I'm not a complete, uh, not a complete masochist. Likes to suffer, but it's amazing to me that Jesus would allow himself to become cold. Uh, where he lived in Israel, uh, Galilee is further north, um, and it can get cold in Israel. It's not as cold as like you know Pennsylvania or something like that, but they can get snow. Uh, so there's quite possible times where Jesus was not appropriately attired for the conditions because he didn't have the right clothing, the right cloak or something. Uh, there's times that he's hungry. There's times that he probably has to go to the bathroom really bad and he's talking to people and he's got to go take care of his business. And there's a part where he talks about 
uh, taking a number two in the Bible. It's a really brief verse. I think it's in Luke somewhere where he talks about the uncleanliness is like, you know, don't, don't fixate on all that. You eat your food, you take care of your business and move on. It's nothing to, uh, nothing to perseverate about. Um, so that's an interesting thing. The Bible and the scriptures always have these really interesting, uh, really interesting, uh, stories and little, little snippets that if you pay attention to them, they, they reveal reality about the scriptures that would be hard to fabricate. All right. So, uh, G- uh Jesus took on the suffering and I, uh, last night my toothache came back. I, um, uh, had a really bad toothache last week. I talked about that, which kept me up all night, two hours. I only got two hours of sleep last week, and I said if it happened again, I would have to call the dentist again. I have an appointment in January when my <laughs> dental insurance starts, but I said if it happens again where it's really, really painful, I may just suck it up and go to the dentist if I can get in today and uh, see if it's like uh, if the cavity is open, if the uh, filling fell out or something, because, man, it hurt again last night. But fortunately, it wasn't as bad as last week. I did get eight hours of sleep, so that was pretty good. Um... But yeah, I'm going to uh, Sacramento here, flying out tomorrow. Uh, there's bad weather coming uh, to the Midwest, and um, I'm going to have a really brief window in Chicago, but there's a very good chance that I'm going to get stuck in Chicago for several days because O'Hare in the winter in particular can be <laughs> extremely difficult to get through. Uh, United has its hub there, which is who I'm flying out with. Um, so I have like an hour in O'Hare where the weather's supposed to be getting really, really bad, which may result in me, um, getting stuck in Chicago, uh, through Christmas and I can't do anything about it. I can't change my flight. There's no flights out. So I just got to take it. And it's a good lesson that we can't, uh, control everything. I contacted Travelocity yesterday, saw, saw what the options were. There are no options. Um, I'm stuck. I've got to, I've got to go through the gauntlet, man. Nothing I can do. So we're going to do this uh, thing here today, but you know Jesus put himself in the frailty of humanity, and uh, there's a good Stoic uh, perspective, which is if there's things that you can control, control them. If there's things you can't control, then don't stress out uh, overly about them because there's nothing you can do anyway. And there's a in between, obviously, the spectrum of those things where you have some control but not total control. You can influence things but not control them. <clears throat> like a puppeteer pulling the puppet puppet strings. Um, so I'm going to go back to this uh, story here, the uh, king and the maiden. We read this last week where a uh, king has fallen in love with a poor maiden who's really uh, in poverty. And for some, some reason and some uh, uh, explanation, he's fallen in love with her. But he's also fig- trying to figure out how to show the maiden that he loves her. And... Um, the story basically is that he becomes a servant. He uh, loses the prerogative of royalty, uh, clothing, position, power, opulence, and he 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 becomes a peasant uh, for real, not just like one day of a peasant or like Donald Trump uh, tossing out paper towels or something, a man of the people type of thing, that the king truly becomes a peasant and experiences life the way that his his uh, beloved experiences life as a way of understanding her and a way of showing her that he loves her and is willing to sacrifice for her. So I looked the uh, story up in, in the um, Philosophical Fragments book. I love the fact that when I read a story or some writings that Soren has read, if I'm reading an article and they cite a book, that I could just go to my library 
and uh, pulled the book out, and one of the citations did list the page numbers, so I could turn exactly to it, and then also use the, um, you know, use the, uh, the index in the back to figure out more, but it's pretty cool, and somebody says, well, you know, you're lightweight about Soren, you're not real serious about him, you're just, you just found a shtick, you found a, a, a Soren shtick just to, uh, just to promote uh, promote yourself, uh, and you just this is just your avenue or your vehicle to do so. Uh, I'd be like, well, there's probably some truth in that. Uh, I don't think any of us are ego free, but I would also say I'm not a lightweight. I uh, bought every book I could of Sorns that's been translated into the English, and that shows that I'm at least serious about it. And again, we want to promote Sorns. So if there are people out there that are experts in Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, I don't want to feel like we're trying to divide a pie up. You know, I want I want us to work together and to promote Sorn, and to promote God ultimately. Because Sorn would say, "Don't promote me. Promote the truth that I wrote about, because that's about God. That's about God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit." Um, and he mentions in the book, Christianity's claim that it had come into the world by a beginning that was simultaneously historical and eternal has caused philosophy much difficulty the idea that god could uh, become temporal and it has huge theological implications that god could take on flesh and be in time Uh, so it's historical and eternal the incarnation is both those two things at once and uh, it's a hundred percent god and a hundred percent humanity so it's not like a kool-aid mix where you have some sugar you have some water and you have some kool-aid and uh, kool-aid is is a, a result of that stirring and uh, now the uh, church fathers and the uh, early councils defined uh, Jesus as truly God and truly man, uh, begotten, not made, which means he has existed in eternity. And uh, But he wasn't always in the flesh. Um, that is true. When the incarnation happened, that was a historical event the first time that it happened. And there's stories in the Bible about um, epiphanies and things like that where um, it, there's argument that um, Christ had appeared before he came in the flesh in, in some form of deity like an angel or something, but that's speculative. And, uh, you know, Jesus emptying himself of the Godhead that's in Philippians 2. It's a very important um, chapter to read Philippians 2 because uh, Paul's basically saying that Christ became a servant. He, he laid aside the prerogative prerogatives of Godhood, of deity, and he assumed uh, the identity of a man. And even up to the point of, he learned obedience even up to the point of the cross. And the technical term for this in Greek, I think, is kenosis. Uh, It's called the act of emptying. So kenosis, that's what Jesus did. He emptied himself. Was truly God and truly man, but he relinquished the prerogatives of godhood. Now he still uh, still performed miracles and still spoke the truth and still had uh, insight and all those type of things. But in terms of having his full array of power, he laid those aside. When he was being crucified, he told his uh, crucifiers that he had called down legions of angels and had himself be rescued, that he decided to willingly turn away from his power in order to serve humanity and to show humanity how much he loves us. Because talk is cheap. Uh, Actions are much stronger than words, of course. Words are important. Uh, words are an action in a way, but um, if somebody says they love me but is not willing to sacrifice for me and is always putting themselves first, I would doubt that they really love me. Uh, so, you know, you kind of love yourself and you tell me you love me because it makes you feel good. Uh, that's uh, I've had those experiences. All of us have. So love is sacrifice for sure. 
Um, so that's called kenosis. And in Philippians 2, it says, But made himself of no reputation and took upon himself uh, the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, he wasn't just look like a man, not really a man, just look like one. It's kind of an illusion. No, he was truly, he was truly a man. Uh, truly a man. Uh, and he had toothaches, probably. And he probably had uh, dandruff or hemorrhoids or uh, body odor. Who knows? Uh, it says that in the scriptures that there was nothing about him that was appealing. He wasn't like a, a David Hasselhoff or a, a Rob Lowe type of uh, handsome man. Uh, so he would look, probably look fairly ordinary. And that was him laying aside his, his deity. Uh, so that's why the, uh, the king and the maiden make so much sense. Suppose there was a king who loved a maiden of lowly station in life, but the reader may already have lost patience when he hears that our analogy begins like a fairy tale and is not at all systematic. So Soren's admitting, like, like, oh no, here we go, it's Disney here. Uh, whatever the equivalent of a Disney uh, story was. It's amazing, like, if you listen to fairy tales, how dark they actually are. And how they've really been cleaned up. <laughs> yeah, these fairy tales were told to children to prepare them for the harshness of life. And uh, you know, you think about uh, getting eaten eaten by a wolf or something. You know, the three little pigs or all that kind of stuff. Or little little red riding hood. These are not these are not uh, sanitized uh, safe tales for sure. Suppose that there was a king who loved a maiden of a lowly station in life. The king's heart was unstained by the wisdom. Loudly enough proclaimed, unacquainted with the difficulties uh, that the understanding uncovers in order to trap the heart, and that gives the poets enough to do and make their magic formulas necessary. His resolution was easy to carry out, for every politician feared his wrath and dared not even to hint at anything. Every foreign uh, country trembled before his power and dared not to refrain from sending a congratulatory delegation to the wedding and no cringing courtier courtier groveling before him dared to hurt his feelings lest his own head be crushed so let the heart be tuned let the poet's songs begin um, then a concern awakened in the king's soul who but a king who thinks royally would dream of such a thing he did not speak to anyone about his concerns uh, for if he had done so uh, any one of his courtiers would presumably have said, Your Majesty, you're, you are doing the girl a favor for which uh, she can never in her lifetime thank you adequately. No doubt the courtier would arouse the king's wrath uh, so the king would have him executed for high treason against his beloved um, and there, uh, thereby would cause the king another kind of sorrow. Alone he grappled with the sorrow in his heart whether the girl would be made happy by this, whether she would acquire the bold confidence, never to remember what the king only wished uh, to forget, that she, that he was the king and she had been a lowly maiden. For if this happened, if this uh, recollection awakened, and at times, like a favored rival, took her mind away from the king, lured her into an enclosing reserve of secret sorrow, or if at times it walked past her soul as death walks across the grave, what would be the gloriousness of the erotic love then? She would indeed have been happier if she had remained in obscurity, loved by the one in position of equality, contented in the humble hut, but boldly confident in her love. And this is why the king uh, decides 
uh, to uh, to take on the appearance of a servant. Likewise, the king could have appeared uh, before the lowly uh, maiden in all of his splendor, could have let the sun of his glory rise over her hut, shine on the spot where he appeared to her, and let her forget herself in adoring admiration. But the king is worried about that because he doesn't want the maiden to uh, just be impressed by him or to to uh, to concede his affection because she feels like he is a superior. He wants to be an equal. He wants the love to be true. Um, so Soren continues to write further on. I, I'm not reading a good chunk of this. Um, but the lowliest of all is one who must serve others. Uh, consequently, the God will appear in the form of a servant. So this is where Soren takes a turn and starts to build upon the idea that God becoming a servant. And here's the tragedy of it all. Because the story is so common, or maybe not common, because some people aren't exposed to these teachings, but for a lot of us, if you're a certain age, you grew up with these stories that Jesus became man and loved sinners and died for them and all that. And, you know, we kind of go ho-hum. Yeah, I've heard it before. Yeah, whatever. That's like a TV program that I've watched a couple times. I don't need to think about that. So the common, the common nature of the story uh, can lull us into a sense of not realizing how great it is. Or someone who hasn't heard the story, if they truly are listening with open ears and someone tells them that God became man, it should kind of freak them out. And it should make them pretty amazed, I would suppose. That would be a reaction that would be justifiable. I was uh, getting a cold yesterday. I tend to be vulnerable in the winter when I work out. So when I go out for a run, I try to, you know, run out the door, do my route, and then come back to my house and get back to my bedroom and get off the sweaty clothes and uh, get on warm clothes and try to warm up quickly so the uh, the chill doesn't soak into my bones. Uh, but sometimes even doing all the protocols don't work, and it, my body gets affected by it. I learned this from college when I used to play ba basketball on Saturdays at the gym. I would have colds on Monday morning, and part of it's just being overheated and sweaty in very cold temperatures. Like my body's immune system suffers temporarily. And yesterday I did everything right, and I still developed some sniffles, and I was going to bail out and going up to a Trogues Brewery last night uh, with some friends for like a pre-Christmas uh, celebration. They were out some beers that are of my liking, and... Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to get my friend sick who was driving. Like, I didn't want to get him sick before the holidays. So I'm like, well, let's wait and see. I don't feel bad because it doesn't feel like it's taking a hold here. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yesterday I was kind of on the fence with the cold. And if I stop when I'm in the middle of that and I just stop pushing and take a day just to rest, usually I'm okay. So I feel all right today, despite my toothache and despite the snotola in my nose. Okay. So we're going to get into a little bit more here about Soren's writings about uh, God becoming a servant. Look, there he stands, the God, where, there, can you not see him? He is the God, and yet he has no place where he can lay his head. That's from the scriptures. I talk about Jesus not having a home. Imagine uh, imagine the Son of God being, being homeless. He does not dare to turn to any person, lest that person be offended at him. He is the God, and yet he walks more circumspectly than if angels were carrying him, not to keep him from stumbling, but so that he may not tread in the dust the people who are offended at him. He is the God, and yet 
His eyes rest with concern on the human race, for the individual's tender shoot can be crushed as readily as a blade of grass. And that comes from the Old Testament, uh, that he, he's, he's gentle. Such a life, uh, sheer love and sheer sorrow. Uh, sheer love and sheer sorrow. That's going to be the title of today's podcast. I like the uh, turn of phrase there. So Jesus has sheer love and sheer sorrow. And sheer is an interesting word, sheer. Sheer, it's like purity. Sheer love and sheer sorrow. So this is this is Jesus. This is God. This is in the person of uh, Johannes Climacus, of course. He calls him God, small g. But Soren's writing about Jesus. Such a life, sheer love and sheer sorrow. To want to express the unity of love and then not to... Uh, then not to be understood, to be obliged to fear for everyone's uh, perdition, and yet in this way truly be able to save only one single person, sheer sorrow. Um, so Soren's always very emphatic that the work of the gospel, even though it has a community aspect, is ultimately about the individual. Each individual bears the weight of making that decision, whether he's going to accept Jesus' mission and ministry and uh, sacrifice and salvation for him. It always comes to the the, uh, the uh, individual. It's not a group decision. Uh, such a life, sheer love and sheer sorrow. To want to express the unity of love and then not to be understood. To be obliged to fear for everyone's perdition. Yet in this way truly to be able to save only one single person. Sheer sorrow. While his days and hours are filled with filled with the sorrows, the sorrow of the learner who entrusts himself to him. Thus does the God stand upon the earth, like unto the lowliest through his omnipotent love. He knows that the learner is untrue. What if he made made a mistake? What if he became weary and lost his bold confidence? Oh, to sustain heaven and earth by an omnipotent, let there be. And then if there were to be absent for one fraction of a second, to have everything collapse, how easy... This would be compared with the bearing, uh, the possibility with bearing the possibility of the offense of the human race, where out of love, one uh, became its savior. But the form of the servant was not something to put on. Therefore, the God must suffer all things, and and it's not a costume. I think Soren's getting at that when Jesus became man, it wasn't something he put on like a costume. He truly was because he was truly a man. So that word put on is, is, is a little bit more nuanced than the Greek. It's not like putting on a costume or a mask. It's like assuming that humanity. It's like putting it on, putting on that identity, uh, truly within the internal nature of the person. But the form of the servant was not something uh, put on. Therefore, the God must suffer all things, endure all things, be tried in all things, hunger in the desert, and that's when Jesus was uh, in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and was tempted. Hunger in the desert, thirst in his agonies, uh, be forsaken in death. Absolutely equal of the lowliest human of human beings. Look, behold the man. And uh, Nietzsche wrote a book called Ecce Homo. That's uh, Latin for behold the man. Uh, so Pilate said to Jesus after he'd had him flogged, Ecce Homo. The suffering of death is, is not his suffering. The suffering of death is not his suffering, but his whole life is a story of suffering. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a, a true statement that Jesus suffered from the day he was born. Imagine being God and willing perfection in the world and unity and peace and love and seeing so much tragedy. Uh, 
that was a that was a cross to bear from the very start. There was a cross in the manger. Uh, it wasn't just a little manger scene of little happy animals and things like that. The suffering of death is not his suffering, but his whole life is a story of suffering. And it is love that suffers, love that gives all and itself uh, destitute. What a what wonderful self-denial to ask and concern, even though the learner is the lowliest of persons. Do you really love me? For he himself knows where the danger threatens, and yet he knows uh, that for him any easier way would be a deception, even though the learner would not understand it. And we are not to turn Jesus from his work. There's a story in the, in the New Testament where Peter starts to hear of Jesus' predictions about how he's going to live his next few days and week and uh, Peter says no Lord you know never shall happen to you and, and Jesus says get behind me Satan so Jesus wasn't a sucker he didn't come to the world and was naive about human nature he came and suffered but he did so willing with his eyes fully fully open and he was not deceived uh, he was not hoodwinked into taking a cause that he didn't understand now he had to experience it in real time so he didn't understand it in one way until he actually did it um, so that's true. Pardon the, uh, the blowing of the uh, nostrils again. Um, so I got to think about, you know, in my calling as a school counselor, I wish I could go back and change some things. Of course, I have regrets. There's times I was overly hard, but it was purposeful. I was trying to push the kids to, um, develop resiliency. I think that there's a, um, there's kind of a spirit of the age now which reduces the demands on kids. And what happens is all we're doing is delaying the child's maturity. That um, If we don't uh, expose them to challenging things in a controlled environment, let's not be surprised that kids falter and young adults falter when they get in challenging situations that are not controlled. Because they haven't developed the, uh, the internal... Uh, stick to this. They don't realize that life can be very, very hard. Even in the best situations, there's often challenges and difficulties. Like I love to travel and I'm going to Sacramento, but it's not going to be easy. The next few days might be total hell. Uh, and sleeping in O'Hare and my, having to find a place to charge my cell phone because I'm getting messages from the airliner about where my plane's going to take off and when it's going to take off. And you know, I can't leave O'Hare because then I got to go back through TSA because it takes like two hours to get back through TSA. So I'll sleep in the airport somewhere and eat expensive uh, airport food and, you know, the whole nine yards. So I've taken on that suffering, but that's a good thing. Like travel is a great thing. It's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. It's great to go to new places and meet new people and eat uh, indigenous food from that area. Like Mexican food in California is great. So I'm looking forward to all that kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, even in the best of things, like the ability to travel, there's a downside and there's a dark side that has to be grappled with, which is like, it might really suck the next three days. And I'm fully aware that I may, I may suffer in O'Hare and can do absolutely nothing about it. Just got to take it. Um, but the willingness to suffer, uh, in, in school counseling, what, what we did is if a kid had made mistakes and that's very normal, like I'm not judging a child for not having the answers and being unwise, I certainly was as a teenager. You think you know more than you do. And in some ways, you know a lot. You're more adult in your understanding. You can think through things. And sometimes that's not put to good ends, of course. You can scheme to your own demise. And I certainly did as a teenager. So a good deal of what we did as school counselors was to try to 
get the kid back on track. You know, you had to kind of an honest conversation about what happened, what they did wrong. It could have been a situation with a teacher or something at home or with another kid. Have them kind of own it, say, like, this is how you kind of reacted and this is how you responded and this is why this wasn't the, the right way of handling it. And have the, you know, the, the teenager nod their head and say, well, yeah, you're right. You know, I'm, not, I'm not here to prosecute you, but let's at least um, establish what the facts are of the situation. And if I'm incorrect, then correct me and we'll move on from there. And then there's consequences that had to happen because part of that's just the system, you know. But you wanted to make sure the consequences didn't damage the child over, over the long haul because that's not good. You want the child to learn from it. Then there's obviously things that are violent or things that are totally unacceptable, um, which require a strong response. But ultimately, all, all form of discipline and accountability is to make the child grow up and to make sure they don't repeat the mistakes. Uh, so, you know, I had to lay aside... Uh, my desire not to be a part of that pain and to walk a child through that, to grab them by the hand and say, let's walk through this together, learn your lesson. I'm not going to bring this up over and over again unless you refuse to learn and do it over and over again. Uh, and I'm going to assume the chaos to some degree of what you brought upon yourself and help clear the air and help to give you a way through this that's um, healing and restorative and hold you accountable for your own good, but I'm not going to just uh, mention this a hundred times, you know, as you progress through high school, ne never let you leave it behind. So that's a lot of what we did. We just as assumed the chaos and the difficulties and join the, the teenager in that pain and walk them through it and gave them hope, but also held them accountable. So when Jesus came to the world, and he came in the form of a baby being born in a manger. And we also prettify, prettify that scene or make it more romantic than it is. And, you know, he's basically born in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a situation that somebody who's a king would not want to be born into, would not be his, uh, his station. So even at his birth, he demonstrates his willingness to serve and uh, to become one with uh, humanity. And the story of humanity from the beginning of time until now is one of a mixed bag. There's sorrow and there's beauty, uh, but there's a lot of sorrow. There's a lot of tears. A lot of tears have been cried uh, since the beginning of the world because of the sinfulness of humanity and the monstrous things that we can do to each other, the things we can do to ourselves. So ponder this as we head into Christmas a few days from here. Um, but made himself, this is Philippians 2.7, uh, Philippians, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of servant was made in the likeness of men. Let's not let the, uh, the familiarity of that uh, allow us to pass too quickly upon those words and to really stare at them and to really ponder them and create space for him in our hearts as we go through the Christmas season. It could be very chaotic and very busy. And full of merriment and arguments and all those kind of stuff, but just general activity and chaos. Uh, let's uh, let's take some time uh, as we get to Christmas and as we are in Christmas to just to step aside for a moment and to peer upon the God-Man who came into this world to become one of us, to show us that uh, He loves us, and let us not be uh, hard and uh, and take that love for granted. I guess that's what I. Long short of it, that's what I want to say, is that um, if God would condescend to become one of us, 
let us not um, disregard that too lightly, because uh, that is uh, truly uh, monstrous if we don't have affection for God because of what he has done for us. So that's the word. I'm not sure I'm going to be doing a podcast next uh, Wednesday when I'm in Sacramento. We'll see. We'll see. I might have some new revelations and things like that. So have a blessed uh, holiday season. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. All that kind of stuff. And we'll talk to you down the road.